0: Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. A couple of weeks ago we began a new series of podcasts in which, well, last, the last recording was actually of a men's discipleship breakfast where I talked uh, the guys here at All Saints through uh, an outline summary of uh, what I think I called at the time something like um, a systematic uh, pastoral theology or a systematic biblical picture of the task of growing towards maturity in Christ. Uh, Addressing the question, And I'll read this from uh, the outline that I read through. Is it possible to articulate a systematic, biblically grounded, theologically informed framework for approaching the task of growth towards maturity in Christ in every area of our lives? I'm not going to go through um, a summary or any of the details of that because it's in the previous podcast, you can listen to it, I encourage you to do so. And the reason it's in the previous podcast is because I don't think it's just something for the men of the church. I think it is something that men ought to take note of, but I think it's something that I'd like um, everyone here at All Saints to have as much of a chance to meditate on and ponder on and pray through and think about as possible. And so for that same reason, as I was thinking about how to take the next step, I decided to do so in the context of our Wednesday night Bible studies here at All Saints. So the next step, as you recall, uh, was I was going to go through that quite detailed, small print, two-page summary of this big picture of the task of growth towards maturity in Christ. I was going to go through it a paragraph or two at a time, just to dig in a little bit more detail into the themes that we began to explore there last time. And so last night, Wednesday Night Bible Study, that's what we began to do, and predictably we got about halfway through uh, what I um, had hoped to do. But my plan for the next few podcasts is to issue these uh, Wednesday night Bible study recordings, so that um, you guys, if you're not able to get to the uh, Bible studies, uh, will be able to listen to them. Uh, and if you are able to get to those and want to listen again, you'll have that uh, uh, avenue in order to do so. I'm conscious that uh, though this podcast is designed for folks at All Saints, um, it is listened to by a few people outside, and maybe this will be helpful for you as well. But um, I do know that. Uh, Some people will have heard that before, and I want to make the podcasts to to give something additional so that there'll be value for you guys. So uh, if you've already been to the Bible study and you think, yeah, I've processed that, um, I want to use the precious time I've got to take on something new, well, there will be something new for you at the start of all these podcasts as well. And uh, to that end, I do want to uh, spend the first few minutes of this uh, week's podcast just going through in a little bit more detail something that I hinted at and had a word or two to say about at the end of our Bible study, and it'll be therefore at the end of this podcast, um, but which I really think bears uh, repeating and expanding a little bit more. And it has to do with um, the theme that's raised in 1 Timothy 3 of the challenge of uh, aspiring to church leadership. Let me just remind you of the context here uh, at All Saints in Fort Worth. Um, we are approaching 300 people in membership. I'm not sure what the exact figures are. It's certainly north of 260 or 270. And with a couple more memberships coming up in the next few weeks and a new meeting for prospective members, it wouldn't, it won't be long before we're headed towards uh, 300 people. And we have a total of, well, we have two pastors, then we have two other elders and three deacons. We opened deacon nominations recently. We've got a whole bunch of really great guys here at the church. I know uh, many, most, almost all of you. I think pretty well getting to know you better now. Uh, have intense admiration for you. Um, I love you all in Christ. Uh, and one of the things that we're keen to do, we're opening deacon. We opened deacon nominations, and we have some uh, a number of nominations of uh, outstanding candidates uh, uh, nominated by their brothers and sisters in Christ here at the church. Uh, we'll be proceeding with uh, recommending some of those candidates to the congregation in the coming weeks. But, guys, we're this is getting beyond the joke. Um, we are nearly 300 people in the congregation and three deacons, really? Um, uh, if the growth continues like this, we could be pushing 400 people by this time uh, next year or in 18 months' time. And really, we want to have a short list of double figures of deacons. Uh, every time we open the nominations in the next few years to cope with and take advantage of all the opportunities for service and all the ongoing tasks of maintenance of uh, life in the congregation and serving people within the congregation and uh, reaching out beyond the congregation into our community. None of those things we're doing as well as we could do and we want to get better at it and to do that we need church leadership and what's really interesting about this is I've I've talked to a number of people in recent uh, weeks and months about this and an admirable, uh, admirable hesitancy is often the response. People, it seems to me, are acutely conscious of the danger of a kind of ungodly presumption, an ungodly grasping for positions of church leadership, uh, which they want to stick clear of. And I think this is absolutely right. We, we don't want in church leadership uh, of any kind, whether ordained Uh, or informal, whether ministers or elders or deacons, we do not want guys who want the position, who want the profile, who want the status, who want to control, what we want is servants. And it's actually a really worrying thing when you sometimes you see um, uh, church initiatives, especially small church initiatives, begun by people and you think, really, I wonder whether some of this is just, um, I'm sick of my leaders, I want to do it myself. Well, that is not to be commended in the slightest. However, it is really intriguing to me, 1 Timothy 3, that when um, Paul is writing to his younger associate, Timothy, though he, of course, does not say that everybody who aspires to the office of elder ought to have it, or everyone who wants to be a deacon ought to be one, he nonetheless says, quote, "...the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task." And he goes on to list the qualifications, about which I'll say something in a moment. But let me present you with an illustration of this, which may, I think, um, uh, uh, serve to clarify what it is I'm saying. Consider not the office of elder or deacon, but the vocation of marriage. And let me just talk to the gentleman, but ladies, you can uh, imagine me saying the same thing to you, uh, just with the the sex is reversed. Gentlemen, if you were 16, 17, 18, 20, 25 years old, not married and wanted to be married, married, I would say you're desiring a noble thing, and it will be a good thing for you to want to be married. It's a tremendous blessing. Uh, It's a real joy. And that's why many people who are single would like to be married. And I would say your principal task is not to figure out which app to use to find somebody who, uh, through the online dating world, to get to know and maybe begin a relationship with, not that there's anything wrong with the online dating world, if you're going to use the internet, you may as well use it for something useful, then why not find a spouse that way, uh, with all the relevant qualifications and so on in place. Um, What I mean, though, is that your principal task is to make yourself ready for that vocation. It will be a bad thing for somebody who's not ready for marriage to aspire to marriage, just as it would be a bad thing for somebody who's not ready for church or a responsibility or a diaconal or eldership responsibility to aspire to that. But it would be a very good thing if somebody said, you know what, I would love to be married. I'd love to uh, serve somebody else and be blessed myself in this way. And it means, therefore, that I need to prepare myself for it. I need to prepare myself for it, so that if it should happen that the right lady, or if you're a lady, the right gentleman comes along, you are ready. That's the spirit that I would encourage a single young person, or not so young person for that matter, to adopt. Not to be constantly worrying and wondering whether the right person is gonna come along, but just to make yourself ready if he or she does. Right, so what I'm gonna say about eldership, uh, it should not be an ambition In the sense of this is an achievement that I want to accomplish, uh, uh, something I want to tick off to aspire to church leadership. But it certainly should be something that every man uh, is aspiring to be, to be the kind of man who could be considered. It would be a tremendous joy here at All Saints, and I'm sure I'm speaking for other church leaders if I say this as well at other churches, it will be a tremendous joy if in two, three, five, ten years time we found ourselves in a church of I don't know how many hundred people, but needing let's say five or six more deacons one year and presented with a list of 20, any one of which would be a fantastic candidate for the role and finding ourselves in the awkward and uncomfortable position of not appointing somebody who is eminently qualified simply because we've got too many. That would be a wonderful position to be in. So gentlemen, I have actually mentioned this before, I think perhaps a year and a half ago back in late 2020, I'm going to mention it again. Um, Notice please that the qualifications for eldership and diaconal ministry are almost exclusively things towards which every man ought to be aspiring. The only thing really that's not uh, is the teaching uh, gift uh, aspect of being an elder. And even that, though it's not something which is quite the moral imperative of everything else, is nonetheless a great thing to be able to aspire to, if not in a formal office or as a preacher, nonetheless to be able to teach and encourage and instruct others in your family and in the church and elsewhere. So just let me remind you, an overseer, just like every man ought to aspire to be must be above reproach husband of one wife a one woman man literally so not just you've only got one wife at the moment but you're devoted wholeheartedly to her and not to any other real physical or online uh, replacements sober minded self-controlled respectable hospitable just think of those things how what could you do in the next month or 6 months or whatever to Become more hospitable or more self-controlled. What are the things that you need to deal with in that respect? Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. My goodness. Would that every uh, prospective wannabe church leader were not quarrelsome? Wouldn't the world be different? not a lover of money he must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household how will he care for God's church he must not be a recent convert well if you're converted now in five years you won't be a recent convert just keep growing or else he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil that probably is part of the thing that I mentioned earlier that some men are rightly worried about you don't want to aspire to this for the wrong reason fair enough Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. And likewise for deacons, many of the qualifications are similar if not exactly the same, though there are some differences of course. Must be dignified. There's a thought. Deacons must be dignified. Not putting on a show of gravitas. Not having figured out how to hack conversations so that people think that you have gravitas. A show of slightly deeper voice and slightly slower to speak and slightly more distant but actually dignified not double-tongued a man of his word not addicted to much wine able to have a beer or two but never able to have six just unthinkable not greedy for dishonest gain they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience let them also be tested first let me say a word about that that means first take the opportunity to serve when you're not a deacon Come and find one of the deacons in your church here at All Saints or wherever else you are and say, hey, brother, what can I do to help? Um, I see you running around the church clearing away the hymn books or sorting out the communion wine or screwing in new light bulbs or whatever it is. Um, hey you don't need to be the guy screwing screws in the light bulbs can I do that for you What is there anything I could do to help you to take responsibility for stuff around the place any maintenance that needs doing any uh, uh, tasks that need? any stuff that needs uh, to be bought from the shop and, and brought over to the church anything like that take the opportunity to have uh, to take the test of real practical experience of service in that way and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless or complete or able to you, you let man serve as a deacon who's already acting like one basically so start acting like one being a servant in that sense their wives likewise must, likewise must be dignified not slanderers but sober-minded faithful in all things so ladies genuinely um it the circumstances do sometimes arise in which a man is in himself insofar as his own conduct goes uh, it seems to be uh, eminently suited, but you start to think maybe there's something wrong because his wife doesn't display these character traits, and it might be the man's fault. And in some sense, it's always the man's responsibility in marriage to deal with that situation. But ladies, you can help or hinder your husband in serving the church in this way. And that really is what this is all about, as I'll come to finally in a moment. But husband, but one wife, managing their children, their own households well. Kids, pray for your dads. Teenage boys, well, I'll be coming after you in 10 years' time, but for the time being, it's your dad that I'm interested in, in this context, pray for your father. And grow into the kind of children who genuinely do credit to the effort that your mum and dad put into raising you and providing for you. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, right? So that's 1 Timothy 3, and it kicks well into the long grass, this idea that uh, ordained leadership offices in the church are not to be aspired to they're to be aspired to in conjunction with the right kind of aspiration to the right kind of character traits that qualify a man for the task now why do i mention all this well because the first paragraph of this pursuing maturity in christ project that we um, uh, began exploring in more detail last night in bible study says this and this is the modified very slightly uh, uh, expanded version um, that i it has one extra sentence added from the, the one I did at the men's breakfast. Here's how it goes. The Christian life can be viewed as a process of pursuing what Scripture calls maturity in Christ. As pastors, it is our goal and privilege to help you in this pursuit. Indeed, and this is the extra sentence, all of us have a responsibility to help one another as we strive towards this objective. All of us have a responsibility. And we talked about this at great length yesterday evening. I encourage you to listen on to hear the recording of that. Uh, I found it helpful myself and encouraging and stirring, I think quite a number of other people did. And there were one or two particularly outstandingly crystal clear comments and so on from the uh, folks in, who took part. So thank you, you know who you are. Um, you did a great job it's really engaging and, and helping us um, uh, all well to crystallize what all of us were thinking. And notice all of us have a responsibility to help one another. And the church needs men like this and women who have these uh, the corresponding character traits then then we will be able to continue by God's grace to grow in a way which doesn't just produce increasing chaos but produces an increasing blessing both to the families who are within the church, refugees from other uh, Christian situations and also of course those who don't know Christ so listen on to the rest of this this is from last night's Bible study what you're about to hear um, and I pray that the Lord would inspire and encourage you as you seek to, Uh, both uh, take seriously what we were talking about last night in relation to growing in maturity in Christ and seeking to help others to do so and also perhaps even for some of you maybe becoming the kind of man who could be considered for this kind of formal leadership role in the next two five ten years we need more men like that gentlemen the task is yours by the grace of God to aspire to it it's a noble task okay that 's enough for me. Um, enjoy the rest of the podcast. God bless. Bye for now. Okay, Those of you who were at the men 's breakfast and there are a few of you here who were uh, a week and a half ago or so uh, will recognize this. Uh, you may uh, have read it also on the um, uh, on an attachment to an email and you may have encountered it on the church podcast. Um, it is a summary of Well, it's basically what I read through and commented on, and then we had a brief discussion about at the men's breakfast. And I want to explain, firstly and very briefly, what it is, just for the benefit of those of you who either don't know or uh, uh, can't remember. And then I'm going to explain what we're doing this evening. So you've got two sheets. This beige one is what I'm talking about now. This beige sheet is my attempt to summarise what you might call a practical theology of growth in godliness you could call it many things but it arises from my recognition uh, of a fact that's obvious to us all that uh, all of us in different ways and some of us specifically uh, find ourselves facing substantial roadblocks in our growth towards maturity in Christ Maybe there are areas of your life where you've really grown up and become more godly and more faithful. But there are areas where you you might call it besetting sins, where you've just not dealt with stuff from the past for many years. And and it might be that it's not for want of trying. And it's puzzling as a pastor to observe this, to observe that some people seem to grow wonderfully in godliness in many areas of their life, or even in all areas of their life, while other people, at least in some areas, and perhaps sometimes in a lot of different ways, remain very childlike in their faith uh, and continue to struggle with all kinds of sins that other people manage to deal with, and it's puzzling. And it raises the question, which is posed in bold italics two-thirds of the way down the first page, is it possible to articulate a systematic, biblically grounded, theologically informed framework for approaching the task of growth towards maturity in Christ in every area of our lives? next paragraph. Uh, it turns out that it is. L- let me give you an illustration. Let's suppose you were a carpenter and you wanted to learn how to be a gardener. Well, you're used to getting a hammer and going bang, 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 bang with things. Right? Roughly speaking, that's what carpenters do. You can tell I'm not one. Um, well, you wouldn't go to the garden with a shovel and just go Bang, 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 bang with it on the ground like you might do if you were a, at least a beginning carpenter. What you would do would be to recognize that gardening, like carpentry, is a gift of God and that he has placed us in a world within which there are certain structures and patterns that ought to be followed if we're going to do it well. And the gardener would probably instruct you in how to go about you know, digging and sowing the seed and pruning the, the bushes and all those kinds of things. And once you would learned, so to speak, the techniques, you'd be a better gardener. And then when the gardener came into your carpentry shop, you'd be able to teach him a little bit about carpentry the same way. In other words, the gifts that God have, has given us come with practical how-to's many of which we learn just from doing. So what about the greatest of all gifts then, the gift that encompasses everything else, Christ-likeness? If there are right and wrong ways to approach the task of gardening and right and wrong ways to approach the task of carpentry, might there be right and wrong ways to approach the task of growing in godliness? And is it possible that some of our struggles with growth towards maturity in the Christian life arise because basically what we're doing is the spiritual equivalent of going into the garden with a shovel and going bang, 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 bang on the ground and wondering why you don't get carrots, or taking a chainsaw to prune the apple tree and wondering why we don't get apples? Maybe there's a, what we might even call a systematic approach that if we just thought about Scripture long and hard enough might dawn on us and will give us a framework for dealing with immaturity and ungodliness that remains in many different areas of our lives. If that would be the case, we ought to figure out what it is. And my two-page summary of what it is is on this sheet of paper. So I wanted you to have a copy of that. I'm not going to read through it now. What I'm going to do now is what I said I was going to do for the men at the men's discipleship breakfast which was to begin the task of going through it much more slowly and digging more deeply into it. Today we're going to look just at the first two paragraphs. I was wondering what would be the best context to do this. I don't think sermons are really the best because we have other priorities in sermons and they're somewhat shorter and there's no real space for interaction, and I want there to be space for interaction. Um, uh, I could do it in podcasts, but again, I don't want them to get too... um, long, and there's no real space for me to do interactions in there, although I might actually just put these out as podcasts as well, because I think they might be helpful to people. What I'm going to do instead is to take um, this time during uh, Bible study to go through that uh, summary, one or two paragraphs at a time, and try and help you to dig a little bit more deeply into it and see what I had in mind by it. And I hope it will raise lots of questions. I hope you'll have some questions, you may already have some, uh, which will clarify my thinking And help all of us Because as we'll see shortly We have a responsibility to do that So what I want to do Very simply Is to read the first two paragraphs of that Which are on this white handout You've got in front of you And then I've got Two broad areas to explore with you Which roughly correspond to those two paragraphs So if you're ready Let's begin The Christian life can be viewed as a process of pursuing what Scripture calls maturity in Christ. As pastors, and I think I can speak confidently for Pastor Neil as well as myself, it is our goal and privilege to help you in this pursuit. For clarity, I've added one extra sentence to this first paragraph, which didn't appear in the original handout, and that arose actually from the men's discipleship discussion. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Indeed... All of us have a responsibility to help one another as we strive towards this objective. Second paragraph. This maturity is best understood as a broad, all-embracing category of Christ-likeness, including lots of different aspects. Overcoming specific sins, addressing specific issues of faithfulness and fruitfulness in personal, relational, and family contexts, developing an increasing capacity to handle the demands and complexities of adult life, dealing with various matters on the borders of what are often categorized as mental health issues, e.g. anxiety and depression, and in general taking every opportunity for faithful, joyful, enthusiastic, sacrificial service in every area of life. So then, roughly, paragraph 1 says, we should be pursuing maturity in Christ and helping each other to do so. Paragraph 2 tries to summarize what that maturity looks like. Let's look at these paragraphs in a bit more detail one at a time, thinking first about the pursuit of maturity in Christ. Grab your Bibles, and off we go. I've got some Bible references here for you, so uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 14. I invite you to turn there first and observe what I mentioned about the pastoral vocation as well as the broad theme of maturity in Christ Um in more general terms. This is a very famous passage, Ephesians 4, from verse 11 to 14. I'll just read it, and then um, maybe ask you a couple of questions about it. And he gave... Uh, this. You know where this comes in the book of Ephesians. Okay, This is second half of the book of Ephesians, how God is building his church so that they demonstrate what God is doing in history to bring all things under the rule of Christ. One of the things God does in his church to facilitate that process is, verse 11, to give apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers... Strange as it may seem, Pastor Neil and me. Uh, Not the only gifts here mentioned, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and so on, are also mentioned. But pastors are mentioned specifically. 2, verse 12, what are we supposed to do? I'm going to start asking people whose eye I catch to. uh, Casey, in verse 12, what are we supposed to do? Uh, You were relying on your device, which has now gone screen blank, and you need to do the thumb thing to me. Okay, (laughs) so Mr... We'll see. Verse twelve. What are you supposed to do? To
1: equip
0: the saints for ministry. Yeah, very good. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. It is not the case that there's no distinction between pastors and everybody else. There there are differences, but it's not like we we do the whole thing and you guys just relax. Uh, this is one of the reasons, also prompted by Mr. Robertson's comment, why I included the third sentence uh, in the first paragraph above. All of us have a responsibility. One of the things we're going to be thinking about in the next few minutes, particularly, is the responsibility we all have to help one another grow. Uh, notice a few other bits and pieces. What are we supposed to grow until verse 13? Until we all reach what? Unity of the faith. Yeah, unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, some kind of shared, comprehensive. Mutually agreed upon, deep and rich understanding of our faith. Well, that feels like it's some way off. We, we, could, still, we could work quite a long time and still have progress to make there. And what else? To yes, very good. To mature manhood. Literally, to a full-grown man or to a mature man. This picks up on the theme of Ephesians more broadly, which you'll remember is that it's in Christ that all these blessings are found. And when we talk about growing to maturity, really what we're talking about is growing more fully into his likeness or into him. Even picture a branch grafted into a tree. The branch grows in strength in proportion to the degree to which it's more strongly connected by a thicker kind of what's a bit of the plant called whether the branch comes out of the main trunk. I don't know. But when that bit becomes thick and strong, it's, it's grafted more firmly into the, the trunk of the tree. And so it becomes stronger. And, and um, the reason, uh, why Silas is nodding is because he's thinking of Calvin's doctrine of the Christian, of, of, the Christian faith more, most generally, isn't he? The union with Christ at the center of everything. We've been talking about this in Bible and theology classes. This is what it's talking about, yeah? Very good. And the goal is mature manhood. Mature Christ-likeness, and it's the role of pastors to help everybody help everybody to reach that. It's contrasted with being children in verse 14, and it's also contrasted with doctrinal vagueness and wobbliness blown around by every wind of doctrine. We want unity of the faith, not every crazy nutcase idea finds its way into the church and everyone goes, oh, that sounds good. So Ephesians 4. Um, just a few other bits and pieces from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Similar themes are present. Um, just over a few pages to the right in your Bibles, where Paul says, "Him we proclaim." Who's him? Well, he is Christ. It's interesting. He doesn't. He's he. The content of his message is identified as the person. We could really think about that, maybe you want to think about that a bit later, but I, we'll skip over it for now. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what he wants to do. And similarly, in chapter 4, verse 12, just over the page again to the right, um, it's Epaphras, who's the church planter that started the church in Colossae, who is here described as, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So he's praying that this congregation, are all saved. It doesn't look like there's any huge problem that's already invaded the church at Colossae. Chapter 2 says it might do in the future, but they're saved, they're believers, but he doesn't want them just to be snatched off the deck of a sinking, burning ship. He wants them to be secure and well-grounded as believers in Christ. And I'm always... Um, no, not always, occasionally struck when it comes to the, the pastoral vocation by what Jesus says in Luke 11, 46, where he castigates the lawyers or the teachers of the law for loading people with burdens that are hard to bear and you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That's a rather literal rendering. We might render it more idiomatically like the NIV does, I think. You don't lift a finger to help them. You set before them this standard of righteousness. And the lawyers did set before the people this standard of righteousness. And then not show them how to do it. Didn't lift a finger to help them. And it's that kind of motive actually that drove me in one way or another to try and frame the big picture of this. I, I wanted to help myself and those whom Pastor Neil and I have the privilege of pastoring to think about how should we i don't want us all to be just banging our head against a brick wall for 20 years and then i can retire (laughs) phew i've done my job you know i want i want us to be making progress and maybe there are things that if we understood god's ways better we wouldn't be going out into the backyard with a shovel and banging it on the ground expecting to see carrots and peas springing up magically but we'd see progress so so much for the role of pastors let's skip off that quickly um on to the next subheading Helping one another Now this I really want to Spend a bit of time on Turn with me to Galatians 6 This will be familiar to you We're back in Paul's letters um, It's really interesting You know that There is obviously a sense In which we are responsible For ourselves um, And we'll all that we say is kind of suffused with that conviction. But It's really intriguing. In Galatians 6, Paul addresses these brothers who he's really laid into for five chapters, or at least for the first two or three. If anyone is caught in any transgression, well, there's a description of so many of us so much of the time, isn't it? Caught, ensnared in something, like the video I saw recently of, of two rutting stags who'd got their horns locked together and couldn't get them untangled, and they'd had the misfortune, as Calvin wouldn't have said, to have tried to take each other on from either side of a barbed wire fence. And so barbed wire had got tangled up in their horns. And so there we are, like a rutting stag, battling against sin, but just so tangled up in it And then all the barbed wire kind of tangling around the head of this poor animal. And there was a guy, basically two guys went over and tried to to free them. Amazing video, if you can find it. Caught in a transgression. Well, what do you need? Well, you need a guy to come and maybe hold you down, (laughs) like if you're a rutting stag, or or to set you free. You who are spiritual, and here it doesn't mean like the super-duper Christians. It's it's a dig at um, the background in the... The book of Galatians to people who are still attached to the structures of the old covenant law and are trying to live as Christians as though Jesus hasn't come and still attached to circumcision and so on and so forth. You who are of the spirit, who have realized that the coming of Christ transforms things. Go and help your brother who's still a little bit too stuck on Moses, even after Moses sell by date has come. Go and help him and restore him. Don't just point the finger. You're stupid. You get your theology sorted out. You'd be far better off. No, go and restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Verse 2, oh no, sorry, uh, end of verse 1. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And this well-known verse, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Not like the teachers of the law. Here's a burden. 50 sermons on the Ten Commandments. <laughs> right, see ya. No, go and help. Yeah? And you can easily think of implications of those commandments that we've talked through in the past where probably at various times all of us could use some help with. And so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, you fulfill the law of Christ when you go and help somebody else who needs help struggling with it. On the same page, Galatians 5, it's really interesting um, the the fruits of the Spirit uh, section and the uh, preceded by the, the works of the flesh section in um, uh, verses 16 to 26 um, come in the context of verses 13 and 14 where, okay, well let's read verse 13 You were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Again, it's referring to the the fleshly old covenant commands and so on and so forth. So what's the alternative to using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? Which might be also your own sinful desires. But through love, serve one another. The whole law is summed up in this command, love your neighbor as yourself. So serving one another and loving one another is the background against which he then launches into the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All those things are designed to function as ways of serving one another. Helping one another to grow in faithfulness. Um, I thought I'd throw this one in Exodus 23. Just turn back to Exodus 23. It makes me laugh. It's, I mean, it shouldn't. I mean, bits of the Bible are supposed to make you laugh. This probably shouldn't. Um, but it is. I threw it in because I thought it would stick in your minds. Exodus 23, verse 4 and 5. Uh, this is in uh, the Lord's, or Moses' as well, exposition of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And we know that the the Ten Commandments are summed up in the law of love. Love God and love your neighbor. Exodus 23, verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. It's kind of a comical scene, isn't it? You know, you're still five miles from Jerusalem and there's a big hill to walk up. And somebody who hates you has got, like, all the shopping from Walmart on the back of a completely overloaded and exhausted donkey that looks like it's got allergies or something. It's like, <sighs> you, just, like you know how terrible you feel when you've got whatever it is you're allergic to. And you just put down your shopping bags and go over to the guy who hates you and lift up his burden off the back of his donkey and help him with it. And it's a really striking image, and it, it seems to be in the background of how Paul then uses the imagery of burden in Galatians 6. So, you know, it's, it's easy enough to imagine, you know, you're, you're thinking after today, maybe, I'm, maybe I need to have a sort of prayer partner. We meet up once a month and just have a cup of coffee and pray for each other. I'm going to find somebody I really like. <laughs> Which is great. I hope there's somebody in the church you really like. And then somebody who gets on your nerves calls you and says, "After Pastor Jeffrey said today, I'm wondering whether I should meet up with somebody once a month to have a cup of coffee and pray with them. And you're like, oh, really? <laughs> Sorry, I'm taken. No, because like their donkey is lying down in a ditch over there and they need somebody to help them out. And they called you. This is one of the comments you made, I think, Mr. Robinson, about developing a culture of openness it was this, you said this week last Saturday, um, readiness to get beyond the superficial in our conversations and so on. Um, well, I think this is, uh, at the very least, uh, an intriguing illustration of that. A couple more, back in the New Testament, Romans 15. We've been thinking up to this point about the kind of help that we might offer in relation to, I guess, either dealing with sins or dealing with issues of uh, just problems, things you're finding difficult in life. And there are many circumstances that you can imagine that would, would fall into that category. Well, the, um, the requirement to help one another extends in other directions also. And famously in Romans 13, uh, 14 and 15... It extends in doctrinal directions. That is to say, there are some issues that might cause theological disagreement in which those whom Paul describes as strong, um, perhaps possessed of a a greater and broader understanding, which uh, makes them realize they're able actually in good conscience to embrace certain actions that, Somebody else who's weak feels uh, uncomfortable with, say. Well, the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, according to chapter 15, verse 1, and not to please ourselves. Of course, Paul is talking about a particular um, uh, context in relation to eating. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians, he has a similar discussion in relation to eating meat, sacrificed to idols, quite famously and the world the um, the hard work tends to be done in working out which other issues that might have implications for. But it's just really interesting to me that whenever this comes up in the practicalities of church life, the strong seem at pains to emphasize, well, this doesn't apply here. I'm yet to find somebody who is plainly in the category of the strong, volunteering the notion that, yeah, maybe Romans 15.1 really applies very strongly, no point intended here, much, much more commonly, those who are keen to embrace their liberties in Christ, which may be right and God-given liberties, are at pains to find ways of explaining how this doesn't really apply to me in this circumstance. So maybe this chapter never applies to anything then. Completely redundant chapter of the Bible. Yeah, exactly. And finally, a nice summary one to end on. Uh, Thess- First Thessalonians five um, fourteen and fifteen. And this is um, of all the churches that Paul wrote to, this is one with whom he had almost no. Gripes. There's a little bit of a niggle about some who are so excited about the coming of the Lord that they don't want to go out and get a job. But basically, this is a church that's doing great, and the poor is so delighted with their growth and their progress in Christ. And verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, not kick the idle at the backside Look down on the faint-hearted. Ignore the weak. Shrug your shoulders and walk away. Verse 15. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Just do good to everyone. <laughs> Come on, guys. So, we have a responsibility then to help one another. And as a pastor, I feel this... Um, uh, I guess particularly and also in a, more, a broader, more structural sense to help us all to grow towards maturity in Christ. And in much of what the time we spend today, we're going to be thinking what that actually means, what maturity in Christ is. Uh, but before we do that, um, any questions or comments so far? Anything you want to raise or hasn't been clear? I've got a little um, breather for you in a moment, um, a, a break from the heavy-duty exegesis. But any questions before we jump into that? Yeah, uh, Mrs. not really sure what you were referring to about Romans 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the issue in Romans 15:1 and parallel um, parallel the similar passage in 1 Corinthians is is that um uh there are certain issues which um like food sacrifice to idols where an idol is nothing at all in the world. There's no god but one. You can eat anything you like, That's wherever it's bought. If it's been sacrificed to some god or if it's kosher or halal or whatever is, it doesn't matter. Eat halal meat if you want, because Allah is just a figment of the imagination of those Muslims who believe in him. It's nothing at all. But not everybody knows this, and some people are so troubled by the thought of meat sacrificed to idols that they feel it right to curtail their freedom because to indulge... In eating that meat would be to sin because they're eating meat sacrificed to an idol and they're participating with demons and so on. Now what should happen in those circumstances when you've got two believers, one who's, who've got their different opinions? The answer is the what, the first, the strong, who's right theologically should restrict his freedom for the sake of the weak. And the question is to what other things does that apply? And my slightly, um, What's the word? My observation, let's just say, is that most of the time when somebody suggests. "Hmm, Perhaps you should curtail your freedom here for the sake of your weaker brother, you immediately get an argument back saying, no, I don't need to do that. That, that would be one example. That's the, that's the kind of issue yet yeah, where, where this sometimes arises. And of course, the, the underlying issue is, what, to whom are you responsible? You're not to please ourselves, Paul says. And so you'd, you'd hope that you'd find Christians erring wildly on the side of caution and really being very careful not to offend their teetotaling grandmother. Um, it, it's quite rare in the Reformed community that that kind of behavior is seen. Such caution. Anyway, but I don't want to go too deep into that, but that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Let's have a little kind of um, a breather from all this heavy-duty exegesis. I've got some philosophical theology for you. I knew you'd be pleased. Um, so I was reading this book, okay? I've, I've been reading this book at the rate of about one page a day for two months. It's kind of heavy. Um... Literally, I just just read a page or two and then kind of make notes and move on. It's called The Eschatological Economy by Douglas H. Knight. And I want to read you a few quotes from it. I'm not recommending you go and buy it. But I want to read you a few quotes from it. And then I'll make some comments. And the quotes are right there on the sheet in front of you. I'll just jump straight in and then I'll explain as I go along. Okay? Mr. Knight says, The church is an eschatological being the visible tip of the not yet visible company of heaven. This company is held together by God and made visible by him on earth. That's one of the easy sentences in this book. Uh, You see how he envisages the church as this community which is, is like the tip of the iceberg poking above the water where the water is hiding things which are in heaven and things which are in the future. A little bit of heaven, and crucially, eschatological, a little bit of the future has protruded into the present. The church is that little tip of the future glory iceberg that reaches back into the present. We should think of the church in that kind of way, he's saying. Well, why should we do that? I'll explain. As the church is itself the work of the Spirit, it works this priestly task of making the world one. What on earth? How are you talking about Ephesians 1, remember? Ephesians 1.10, God's purpose is to bring all things together under one head, to unite all things. God's purpose is to have... One glorious community under the head that is Christ. And the church is the nucleus, the expanding nucleus of that community as it spreads out through time and history. And in the future, in glory, that community will have grown by that time. And you'll see the whole iceberg, but now you only see the tip of it. And so the the Spirit-empowered church is that tip of the iceberg, poking back from the future into our part of history and starting to spread throughout the world and fulfilling its spirit given vocation and he uses the phrase to make the world one it's what sort of thing philosophical theologians do you know anyway now this is the third paragraph is really where the rubber hits the road as far as it seems to me in relation to what we're talking about i'll read the whole thing and then i'll explain why i think it's significant it is persons who make persons present to each other persons suffer one another The triune persons of Father, Son and Holy Spirit create the possibility of all other persons. If we do not obediently, together with God, constitute one another, much of each of us remains missing and never comes to be. We are all equally in debt and each other is precisely what we owe each other. If much of what any person can be, is not in fact brought into place by those related to him or her. All parties are stalled. It is the real task of each of us to come up with the whole of the rest of us, a whole that is coincident with the end that God works. Each of us owes all others this future, and it is to this end that we are determined and from which we are measured. What we owe each other is measured from what God intends that we become we owe each other and God this relationship and this being and all the people said what? (laughs) (laughs) right so what Knight is articulating uh, Mr Knight Doctor, PhD from London University is what's called a relational ontology that is to say What makes you you is your relationships with other people. Imagine just you being you, but none of the people that you know are in existence. You're just a little island, a little atom of humanity. No relationships with anybody else. Who would you be? You wouldn't be you. You get to be you because of your relationships with each other. We talked about this in relation to marriage. I'm looking at a couple of married couples, here, freshly married couples. We talk about this, how you you give yourselves to each other and thereby become who you are. That's why relationships are so precious, because when you lose one, it's traumatic, because a part of you has been pulled away. It's so painful. Well, it is persons who make persons present to each other. That's what he means by that. Persons suffer one another, suffer in the old Puritan sense of in. Endure or put up with. Now the model for this is God Himself. Third sentence: the triune persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit create the possibility of all of the persons. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, um, they mutually bring each other into being. If the Son stopped existing, whatever the Father was wouldn't be a Father, right? Because the Father can only be a Father. I became a Father when Ben was born. Ben's being brought my fatherhood into being. So the the persons of the Trinity in eternity are the picture of this relational ontology, relational way of being. They bring each other into being. And therefore, the whole of the rest of it is all saying this. We owe to each other what each of us has not yet become. Think of the church again. The church is that vast iceberg stretching off into the future. And in glory, you'll see the whole iceberg. But right now, we just see a little tip of it poking back into 2022. But you have a future as part of that community. There's a future John Henry and a future Mr. Robinson and a future Mrs. Neal and a future Birdie. Wow, what a wonderful thought. Birdie is going to become... Somebody and something. Glorious and wonderful. And we owe her that thing that she isn't yet. Because the only place she's gonna get it from is from us. Those relationships that she has with us. And so, principally right now, her parents and her brothers and sisters. But when, you know, she's baptized, when was she baptized? Not long ago, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Not long ago, I remember. And, And we all committed to support and encourage, I forget the exact phrasing when we make that commitment after the baptism. But what we're committing to, giving being to one another so that we bring into being the future them that doesn't yet exist. Now look again at what he says and it will make sense, you see. If we don't obediently, together with God, constitute each other, much of each of us remains missing and never comes to be. If we just say, well, never mind, don't like birdie. humanly speaking, that the birdie will not become what God has... This is where you have to look a bit careful with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. It will happen because God is sovereign over it, but hypothetically speaking. We are equally in debt, and each other is precisely what we owe each other. I owe Fraser future Fraser. See how philosophical theology is awesome if you can figure out what it's talking about. Hmm. Which I think I have on this occasion. Uh, Right at the end of that paragraph. What we owe each other is measured from what God intends that we become. I've got that underlined here. What we owe each other is measured from what God intends that we become. God intends that Clayton Sally become perfected Clayton Sally. And he will be on the last day. Gloriously so, and we owe Clayton Sally that. We, the church is that community which is the nucleus of the new humanity growing into and filling the earth. And we are obliged, indebted to you to give you that which you are not yet. Yeah? So, Douglas Knight, The Eschatological Economy, page 18. <laughs> now, let me illustrate what I mean by this, right? Um, just give you a couple... Think of relationships. Think of a marriage, right? Um, think of a wonderful marriage in which you... I can think of wonderful marriages where you you, you have a... a it's gone on for 40 years, maybe, and, you, and the wife just kind of has blossomed and become wonderful, and then you meet her husband and see them interact, and you think, oh, I can see how you've got so wonderful, because you're just loved so richly and wonderfully. You may tragically have seen marriages or other relationships within families that have not been like that, where you, you find yourself wondering, goodness, what could that person have been if somebody had just given themselves to him or her? And tragically, they're, they're not what they could be. Um, thinking friendships. We think of good and bad influences, don't we? And, you know, parents, you're always thinking, who, who the influence is on my children? Another way of thinking about that is, who is it who's giving themselves and giving your children to your children? It's not just influences; it, relationships become part of what a person is. A very practical illustration of, of how we can actually we put this into practice in in sort of daily life, so to speak. Nicole, Mr. Jeffrey, and I were planning the parenting discussions, which are taking place a week on Sunday, and we realised we've got a couple of problems. The first problem was we've got 22 couples or something. Is that how many we've got? There's so many. I don't know, how. where are we going to put all these people? And, and then we realised we've got quite a spread of ages and so on. So what we decided to do was to break the group in two and have a, a kind of younger couples or couples with only very young children and then couples who've also got somewhat older children and we have kind of two separate discussions. But then we thought we've got a problem of babysitting. How are we going to... Because we've got... Oh, my goodness. We, and then we realised, hold on a second. <laughs> we put the classes back to back and we have the first lot babysit the second lot's children and then the second lot babysit the first lot's children. Peachy. So Nicole sent an email out, and there's sort of nervous silence coming down the wires <laughs> Because we all suddenly realise that you can't receive without giving, or that in a very practical way, you're going to be giving yourself, some of you parents, to somebody else's children, and therefore to their parents so that they can receive and grow and lord willing uh, get a better vision a bigger vision for what it'd be like to be great mums and dads it's very very practical so we owe each other all of that okay any questions comments anything you want to talk about off the back of that before we flip over the page who wants to borrow this book anybody (laughs) maybe you could tell me what the rest of it means if you do Um, all right. Nicole, yeah. You might just okay, kind of each other the future of what they could hmm.
1: um, Being we can't give to everybody.
0: Hmm. So I kind of get the vision, but I think So practically, Yeah, so you're not responsible for every ounce of every other person in the universe's being, yeah. So your responsibility must be in proportion to, and conditioned by the character of your relationship with them. So obviously, a husband and wife, you and me, we're we're quite responsible for one another's futures. And if everyone anyone sees Nicole walking around, looking so totally miserable, it's probably my fault. It probably isn't your fault initially. It might be, depending on what you said. So so we. Uh, relational proximity conditions the degree and the kind of debt that we have to each other. But we all have that debt in principle to each other. Think of what one word can do. Think, think of what I could do to the future of everybody in this room by walking over to one of these delightful young children here and bashing them on the head with a chair. Just think what that would do. Just think about that for a sec. So immediately I would be asked to resign, and if I didn't, I would be fired, because you don't really want a pastor who's going to go around assaulting small children. Well, what would that then do to the life and future of the church here? And probably for a number of people, their kind of perspective on, you know, pastors. (laughs) You know, in five seconds of madness, could totally destroy huge numbers of people's, uh, aspects of people's lives. Really shatter people's thinking about the world and experience of life, couldn't it? Like, You could be absolutely perfect and wonderful for 99.999% of the time and then do one stupid thing for five seconds. Or, conversely, let's think more positively, you could think of what some of you can call to mind easily and all of you would if you thought about it hard enough one or two things that somebody said once that just always stuck with you and it only took them three seconds to say that so you might not have that much of a debt to somebody who you don't know that well but in three seconds you could sow a seed that transforms them does that make sense? So. So in, in principle, we are wired into each other's lives and futures in such a way that we really do determine one another's futures, humanly speaking. So yeah, thank you. Uh, wow, well, all the hands going up now. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Jack, and then we'll go right back. Yeah. Uh,
1: this is probably more of a question of degrees, but it seems to me, from what this paragraph is saying, when it talks about how we owe each other, not just everything that someone else will become, Everything that they could become, and at least in in this life, that's not the same thing. We will never right. reach our full potential. Um, so I don't know. Maybe it's more of a con, but it seems like a, it's absolutely a tremendous debt we owe to other people because it's something that, in our fallen nature, we will never accomplish in in this context.
0: Yes. 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 So, is I mean, one way of framing that is it to say that you 've got this permanent gap between what we know our aspirations should be and where we know that the reality will end up that familiar thought to people you have it in relation to yourself, every aspect of your life actually probably from you know your godliness in every domain to career advancement to the way your kids will turn out and how much money you'll earn and what your retirement will be like and or, <laughs> whether the kitchen will ever get clean again and um, what my 18th birthday party will be like, all these things. There's this gap between expectation and reality, but most most significantly in what history brings about for somebody else. Yeah? Okay, so how do you deal with the gap between aspiration and what you know will be probably reality.
1: Mhm. And, and, and ask the Lord to help us to to make
0: some progress. Right. And and look to our brothers and sisters to um to help. To lend a hand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, you know, not, it's not their full responsibility, but but we, we should be helping each other to grow. Yeah. So I mean, that that's really lucid and, and comprehensive, and lots of different ways of saying don't give up make sense
1: this is reframing like i've always thought like i'm sinning in a way by falling short of my own potential however this seems like when i look at someone that i care about or that's in my life if they're falling short of their potential that's a way that i'm failing i think it means more like just we owe them truth and love and jesus like that's how i look at it like just
0: don't bash him over the head with a chair, you know. Like. there's that? <laughs> don't don't beat them with the Bible. Just grow with them. And, okay, I don't know. So, there's a couple of things here. So, like, they're fail- They're you are not responsible for them, but
1: you are responsible to how you react to them and how you treat them.
0: Yeah, I think. Now, I think that's really helpful because we we need we need to find a way of saying, look. You're actually responsible for your sins. So stop it. But not just stop it. Let me give you a hand here. Does that make sense? And I think the, the, what you've done, Jack, is, is to capture and reframe the kind of thing that arises from when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be, part, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we also say, yeah, well, you'll never be perfect, but do your best. And we sort of blunt the force of it slightly. And you want to say on the one hand, no, you won't ever be perfect. But let's not just re-fra- recast what Jesus says as you know, do your best. Lower the standard to just below wherever you sort of stumbled into this morning. And, and what's really interesting, I think, if, if we think about ourselves, we can probably end up with battling feelings of inadequacy and so on and probably we need to deal with that but when you think of somebody else think of what somebody else could become I mean obviously looking at you guys you got married three two months ago you don't want to you don't want to lower your aspirations concerning the uh, First Peter three, beauty and glowing godly character that your wife will, you pray, display in forty years' time. Right? Because you know on on the grounds that, you know, well she's she's only human, she's never gonna be perfect, you know, not until glory. So I might just go and play football, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, we when you when you realise this is other people we're talking about, it's no longer oh, it's my inadequacy, I think we want to say more, how else could I give myself to this person? And, and if you take, not in quantitative terms, but in qualitative terms, because Nicole's point is a good one, you don't owe everybody else in the, in the church 24 hours a day. But, but in, in qualitative terms, what we owe one another is our contribution to what they will become so if all our interactions are governed by that recognition so sometimes it will be bashed them over the head with the bible and you've probably you've got four children you know sometimes calvin <laughs> right, but sometimes he needs a word of encouragement even when he's you know, he's not done the best he could you know but actually he's done better than last week well done calvin Thinking on you now, Calvin. You know, it could, could have been anybody, um, and so you, all of our interactions are conditioned by the sense that yeah, we owe each other the unexplored future of their godliness and maturity more broadly. Which incidentally, we're not going to get onto point two tonight. So I don't think I'm going to try and squeeze it in in 15 minutes. We'll, we'll we'll wrap this up and and we'll come back to it next week because there's too much there to squeeze into 20 minutes. Does that make Is that drawing any of these dots together a little bit? We may come back to that. Um, Related to this, and then we'll go to Uriah and Fraser. Yeah, so go ahead. Okay, so your original question was about the difference between the future that will become and the future that should become and the gap between those
1: two. And I'm wondering if it matters, because when I think about it, I don't really care about the gap. I'm just like, I, I don't know what the... I will become. Amazing. All I care about is what I could become. Yes, yeah. So the gap is irrelevant to me and what I will become. I don't know what I will become
0: if that's relevant.
1: All I do is I just aim for what I could become. Right, right. And I think of, I mean, I know I sports a lot. I think of the athletes. You know, Tom Brady's probably thinking about, well, what if I completed 100% of my passes? That's just what he's aiming to do. He's not worried about, oh, at the end of my career, I'll actually complete this amount. He just, every day he yeah. goes out there, he's just trying to complete the pass every time.
0: And yes. So,
1: is that a reasonable way to think about it, or is it
0: something wrong? No, I think that's really helpful. And there's certainly not anything wrong with it, theologically. Practically, it's very useful. You see, practically, it's just workable, isn't it? You don't get kids, you don't get up in the morning and go and think, right, uh, homeschool, math, history, English, piano practice. I'm going to try 73% effort today. <laughs> you, I mean, you don't ever think that, do you? bible and theology class at church i'm going to try 46 take me on seriously get a shock um we, we you go out and you 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 think let's give this 100% and then what that if you take that seriously it starts to shape other things you do and we will get onto that later when we on the second side of the sheet i showed you earlier when we start thinking of some of the practicalities of this you will have to get to bed earlier and Stop playing video games till 2 in the morning. But this is a helpful illustration because what it means is, practically, you try and complete every pass. Now, in theological terms, it's very helpful too because the, the hypothetical what I could become is non-actual even in God's mind. What, what, what's in God's mind is your actual future, but it's deliberately hidden from you. What would you be like if you knew that tomorrow, mid-morning, you were going to have an outburst of unrighteous anger? That's not... You couldn't live like that. thats If that bit of God's sovereign plan for your life had been disclosed, it would mess with your head. You can't... Think of um, Macbeth and the witches. You read or seen Macbeth um, when she has the vision of the future, which makes her bring the terrible future about. And that you can only really explore that in fiction because it can't happen. So what God gives us in His wisdom is just be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And perfect um, probably has overtones of mature, um, fully grown, which includes moral content but isn't limited to that Um, he gives us that aspiration complete every pass Tom he doesn't say well I'll try for 78% and then you get to 79% and you say well i better miss a few (laughs) Um, so I think that's part of the practical picture so again when you start thinking so now think about your relationships so we're talking about married couples you've got your son here and your mum and this is really a really useful thing for a teenage boy. How old are you, 16? Almost 15. You're tall for 15. Think about what your mum could become if she had the most godly 15-year-old in Texas. Well, you think I'm joking. Your mum doesn't think I'm joking. Your mum's like, yeah, this would be awesome. Yeah. And, well, why, why not? I mean, what what hasn't Christ given you? There's nothing that he's not given you that you need. So you then think of all the people closer to you, your big sister or your your brother or your your husband, your wife, your children, and think, um, what could they be if I was the kind of friend to them that Jesus is to me? And back to Douglas Knight, we owe each other that because what we are in all these network of relationships is this historical outpost of that future perfected community and we're on the way to becoming that and we owe each other where it is that we're going to and we are actually going to glorified perfection you know, just with a few bumps in the road on the way. So, yeah. Uh, now, Uriah and um, uh, Fraser had a question. Should we, Uriah, do you want to go ahead? You got one from Zoom Azuma. All
1: right. What would you recommend to balance out relationships in the church where we may be taking turns being the strong and the weaker brother just because all of us going in Christ have areas of great strength and
0: great weakness in ourselves at any given moment? Hmm. What would you recommend to balance out areas, relationships in the church, where there's weak and strong and then weak and stronger? Well, I think you... There's a couple of thoughts. So the first is, Paul's conversation here is not... It doesn't concern every single doctrinal or practical disagreement. So it's understandable that there is sometimes some questioning when somebody suggests... Maybe the weaker brother principle applies here. Because the weaker brother principle doesn't apply to everything. Um, we, the question is, how do we handle those circumstances where, to some degree or other, it does does apply? And, and part of the picture, and you see this in Paul's writings, um, that it goes alongside an attempt to talk about and to help one another towards mutual understanding and unified understanding in relation to whatever those issues are. So here's an example. So Here's a potential example. Like music in church. I had a conversation with somebody about music in church a, a week or two ago. And so there's an issue where, on the one hand, you could imagine some kind of hard and fast rules or principles, but it's quite hard to get them directly from the Bible and It's very easy to imagine there being a kind of texture of disagreement. And the problem is people disagree not just about the issue but about how important they think the issue is because somebody wants to say, well, it's just music, what's the big deal? And somebody else says, no, it's a really big deal. And clearly music is some kind of a big deal, but what about the music is a big deal exactly? And so, so where do you go from there? And you don't want either party just to pull rank and say, well, I'm the weaker brother, so you should give me the kind of music I want. I can't possibly worship God unless you're playing fifteenth century or seventeenth century chorales. So you need weaker brother principle. <laughs> it's like your kind of uh, rhetorical trump card. That's not what you want. Um, we need some kind of conversation, an ongoing and that requires a kind of patience and forbearance. And that patience and forbearance is itself a gift that we give to each other if I'm wrong about something doctrinally or you're wrong about something in terms of lifestyle or theology or something then one of the things that we owe to each other is the patient willingness to keep talking it through purposefully so that we can reach Ephesians 4 unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God Like I would like us to have in relation to that particular conversation, a clearer vision for what and why in relation to music in church. I don't think it's easy. And I'm very sure that it's not going to be a quick fix. Very sure. And I have hundreds of years of church tradition as precedent for that claim. There's no way of solving that conundrum. So we're going to need to bear with each other. So I think that's gotta be part of the picture. Um, and and then you need the, the wisdom of so when do you say, Well, I've got to bear with my son's foul language and bad temper and grumpiness towards his mother? Or back to our Bible smack with everything you know, there are there are some things where you know, if my son turns around and this, he hasn't done this, but if he turns around and says, Yeah, well, Dad, you have gotta bear with me <laughs> you know, that's not acceptable. So, you know, they, set, we need the wisdom also to know when to be firm and when not to be. So, uh, keep those questions from the zoomers coming, um, Mr. Bennett. You've been extremely patient. Um, if you can still remember your question, or if it's not been uh, lost in the fog. I think you've covered it
1: already. That's the, the point bearing in on me here is that. Where I see that my own lack of maturity has limited my ability to love the people around
0: me well. Well. And and
1: therefore, if I'm going to love them in the future well, I need to change.
0: My own lack of maturity has limited my ability to love the people around me well. And if I'm going to love them well in the future, I need to change. Well, that... Probably could be written over all our heads, Fraser. Really, that's what all this is about. Um, it's very—it's um, the kind of candid confession, perhaps that Mr. Robinson you had in mind. Um, but it's—you've just articulated very well, I think, what we all feel. Perhaps couldn't have put it so eloquently, or wouldn't have dared. But that's that's really what's at stake what's at stake with our own lack of maturity is everybody else's future um, john henry has a question i want to make a comment here as well about uh, particular roles in church so remind me if i forget but uh, go yeah, ahead I comment that that's
1: especially a strong feeling that you're expecting your first
0: child <laughs> yeah especially a strong feeling when you're expecting your first child. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, KB. Just um, one thing that the kids and I talk about a lot is what heaven will be like. And one of the things I try to say, probably not theologically correct by any means, but just well, the... Have a
0: go. It might be closer than you realize.
1: It's basically going to be like this just without this. Like, all of our relationships, we will still have relationships. We will still have work. We will still have eating and gardening and all the things. It's just there will be no sin. And so then we kind of get into the, wow, what would that look like? Mm. Well, what would it look like to not sin? Like we try to actually talk through that. And it's kind of like what you're saying, just like the relationships will just be so much better. You mm. <laughs> won't have secrets. that There's just everything is yes, better. Yeah.
0: Yes, Yeah, know that's a very good way of putting it. That's how we think. Mm. And and certainly, um, it's far more accurate than just a kind of abstract, disembodied. Everything will be happy. It's yeah. it's a glory. I try to tell them they're
1: going to have work. Like, yeah, work works. and relationships okay, and have
0: work, so yeah. Well, well, I'm to looking forward. I, mean, I like, I, I used I used to be a scientist, and I had a whole bunch of experiments I never got to do, and I never flown one of those planes that Jack gets to play with all day i want to have a go and everyone thinks that's ridiculous because why would you well so god is going to let you have f-16s now but not in glory be years, though. yeah though maybe they won't need m- so many missile things on them but they'll just go faster and higher won't they and that'd be awesome I, you know I'd, I'd, how fast could a jet ski go no no seriously Maybe we should have a a series of Bible studies about um, the resurrection. Maybe it would be quite fun. Uh, Last couple of minutes, and we're going to finish early. Check that out, hey? Um, One of the things that um, uh, uh, you're aware of, um, if you've been paying attention, is that Deacon nominations opened um, uh, a few weeks ago. And we had some nominations. Great guys. And you know there are some great guys at All Saints. It won't surprise you that some of them were nominated. Gentlemen. Um, this is getting ridiculous this church has gone from a hundred and something to nearly three hundred we have three deacons we carry on at this rate in a year or two we could have four hundred or more than that we need in five years time please I would like a double digit length short list not Long list on 40 on the long list a double digit length of men who are tested, who've taken the initiative themselves to educate themselves theologically, who have gone to the existing deacons and said, uh, Hey, Nate, Sean, Daniel, how can I serve? and have then done it, <laughs> even when they weren't available to do it because they've then taken responsibility for somebody else doing it, and whose lives are transparently godly and whose children are, uh, are loving and disciplined and believers and whose wives are glowing and happy um, if we don't have a dozen or so by the time we hit 400 I don't know what we're gonna do that we, we desperately need and there are, I say this to you guys because you are I know enough of you uh, well enough to have deep admiration for you genuinely um, and many of you here this evening are a little young, and it's fine, but you're not going to be a little young in 10 years' time, brother. And so this pursuit of maturity, and the way you put it, Fraser, is so crisp, I can't remember it, but it will be on the recording, so maybe it will come out again in one of my sermons if I quote to you, if I have your permission to do so. Um, like, Please love the future of this church enough to contemplate yourself in 10 years time in a role like that. And not just this church, of course, because as Douglas Knight puts it, um, where does he say this? Oh yes, the second quotation. As the church is itself the work of the Spirit, it works this priestly task of, I'll paraphrase him, bringing the world Uh, into unity under the rule of Christ and a church needs the practical matters of service both within and beyond its walls to be sorted out so that it can reach the world. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful if in 10 years time, wouldn't it be gentlemen? So 10 years time, you'll practically be old enough. Not quite really, but 20 years time. All right. Still gonna finish early. Any other questions? Oh go on. <laughs> There's
1: one more question? Um, how can we practically live out boasting about our weakness, boasting about our weaknesses so that we can encourage one another without becoming a big weakness parade? Mm-hmm. Should we be just as ready to encourage the strength and growth as we should to encourage the faint hearted? Mm.
0: So boasting about weaknesses. So Paul, when he uses that phrase, is not talking about boasting about moral failings. So that's one thing. He glories in Christ Jesus, and he calls himself the chief of sinners, not because he's proud of it. So, so let's make a distinction straight up. We're not boasting about moral failings. We're, we're, all of us say what Fraser says, and then we say thank God for the blood of Jesus. And so we praise Christ. We don't boast in ourselves in relation to that. We boast in that. And then I think, you know, you you look around, you see your fantastic 14, nearly 15-year-old son, and you say, aren't I great? No. You say, thank God. And we recognize our weaknesses. And so we, we boast in our weaknesses in that sense, where we recognize that our not moral failings, but um, practical incapacities have left space for God to work wonders. Does that make sense? I think that's probably a helpful way. Of, I mean, there's a lot more could be said, but, um, and and that's certainly what's in uh, Paul's mind And when he's talking to Timothy. Um, he says much the same sort of thing. Okie dokie. So next time, next week, <laughs> we'll come back to the second half. of it. I knew it was being a bit ambitious to do two paragraphs in uh, an hour, hour and a half, hour and a quarter. Um, we will we'll jump it back into um, looking more specifically and concretely at what I mean by maturity in Christ. We've already established that it is our responsibility both to pursue it, and to help one another to do so, and particularly the latter. Well, now we need to figure out what it is, and to that task we turn next Wednesday. So join us if you're able to make it. Uh, Great to have you Zoomers. I think we might have a record tonight for the most questions asked on Zoom. See if we can break it next week. Let's pray as we finish. Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for one another, for the privilege of being this nucleus of the future intruding into the present, and we recognize our high calling to grow into what the church is called to be, and to cause one another to do that. Please would you help us to pour into one another's lives what each of us needs to become the mature, godly, Christ-like men and women that we are called to be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, everybody. God bless you. And see you Saturday. Saturday, if you're able to make it at the conference. Uh, You've got an RSVP from uh, me. So if you haven't yet replied and are able to come, please do so and looking forward to seeing you. Bye for now. (laughs)